Good morning, church. I hope you have your Bibles ready to go this morning because we're going to run through a lot of Scripture today. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll get to that in just a little bit. We are in the middle of a series called Back to the Bible, which is a seven-week conversation uh, about the Bible and what it is and how it functions and how God continues to breathe life and shape and change us. Because we live in a, com- in a confused culture, don't we? In a confused culture that needs some sort of standing, some sort of story that roots us, some type of understanding. And Jesus gives us that teaching in the Gospels. We see it all throughout Scripture. Uh, The main image we've used in this series is that of a library, that Scripture is more than just a book. In a a way, it's more like a library. It's uh, written over a span of about 1,500 years by 40 or so authors, three different languages. Uh, It's an amazing library uh, that God has inspired and continues to do that with. And, And understanding the context of these books is very important because they are written in different times, to different situations, with different questions that are uh, prompting uh, the writing of these stories. I think it's important as we are the people of God that we understand it's not our job to master the Bible. Our goal when we come to it is to be mastered by the Bible, right? The Holy Spirit that moves through this library. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a passage in 2 Timothy 3, which is probably the clearest picture that Scripture gives us as it describes itself. Paul's writing about these blue books, the first 39 that are the Old Testament. And uh, he has some things to say about how God breathes into these books. And and last week we focused on the first part. The first part of uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scriptures, God breathed. And, And it talks before that about how it's able to lead us to salvation in Jesus. The second part is what I want to focus on today, where it goes on to say that Scripture is God breathed, it's inspired, for the sake of correcting, rebuking, and encouraging, training us in righteousness so that we might come to look more like Jesus. If we want to read the Bible to be more like Jesus, here's my premise this morning. We ought to do our best to learn how Jesus read the scriptures that he had available and use that way of reading it, that priority that Jesus gives as we read the entire Bible. So that's what I want to do today is I want to look at how did Jesus read the Bible? What is it that he emphasized? There are certain books that he quotes a lot, Genesis and Isaiah and the Psalms. They're all throughout Jesus' ministry. You hear him quote. He never quotes from from Joshua. It makes you wonder how much uh, time did he spend on these different books? Which scrolls might have been available in his synagogue? Of course, he's got a little head start on everyone, being the author of all things. Uh, But there's a sense in which Jesus shows his priorities with the law and the prophets. And I want to look at that today. How did Jesus prioritize Scripture, and how does that help us become and be trained to look more like him. Let's pray as we open our time in the word this morning. God, our Father, we come before you today and we lift our hands as we've sung together before you in in unity together as people that desire to be united around your son, Jesus, around his teaching and around this incredible library that you have breathed in through the centuries. And God, we in our culture need something to stand firm on. And that's the place we're choosing to put that foundation, God, is on Jesus, who's the head of this church, and on this library that's been left with us, that you continue to teach us and lead us into all truth through your Spirit's leading. And I pray today that would be true for us, that we would walk out with a greater sense of who we're to be and how we're to read this library and how we're to be inspired to move forward as your people in your church. This morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. How did Jesus read 
the Bible. I want to begin with a conversation that happens in Matthew. We've talked about this chapter already in the series. Matthew chapter 5 is where we read the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, I'm going to spend a lot of time in Matthew today, actually. Uh, in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 5, we, we find some instructions and some things that Jesus has to say about what he's doing with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew scriptures that he knows in that day. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, the first half. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, I want to ask a question before I read on in in, in chapter 5. Why is it that Jesus feels the need to make this claim? I want to make sure you know, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Why would he feel the need to stress that intent? And I would suggest that the answer is that, that that is exactly what he was being accused of doing by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at that time. That's why he has to defend himself in this chapter and say, okay, I know this sounds like a new teaching, but my purpose is not to come to destroy what's been written in these first five books, what the law hands to us or what the prophets will say as well. How Jesus reads scriptures and teaches them sounds at times as if he's trying to do that. And he wants to assure us, no, that's not my purpose at all. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you can understand fully why they believe he's trying to abolish the law. Let's read in verse 38 a little bit later on. He directly talks about some laws in the Old Testament, and he has something to say about those laws. Here it says in verse 38, you've heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You better believe they had heard that passage before. In fact, they would remember it. It comes right out of the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book that that Moses was to have written. It was a word that was delivered by God. So if you have your Bibles, open with me if you would to that passage that Jesus is referring to. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19 verse 21. When Jesus quotes this and says, you've heard that it was said, they know exactly what Jesus is referring to. And this is that passage. Again, Deuteronomy 19 verse 21. Show no pity. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Now, this was the the command that they had had. This is in the Old Testament. It's clearly stated and said there. And instead of explaining about that section of Scripture and what it meant, Jesus surprised everyone with this. Verse 39. But. Now, that's a problem if you're reading in that first century, right? You've heard that it was said. He's quoting Scripture. And then the response is, but. And I'm sure the question would have been, but? Jesus, you don't respond to Moses unless it's with a but, of course, right? But a but, a challenge to what was said in Deuteronomy, that's absurd. Who do you think you are? Well, they'll find out. Imagine a preacher today saying the same thing, right? You've heard the Bible say, but. Who says a thing like that? And the question for us, I think, when it comes to Matthew 5 is, does Jesus have the authority to challenge the scriptures. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the temple. He's greater than even the law. And so he goes on and finishes that clause. Let's read verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. 
Now, we can't imagine how ridiculous this would have sounded to the first century Jews who know the law. I mean, these are Jews that are struggling to survive with the boot of the Roman Empire on their necks. This is not exactly the news of a Messiah they expected. But more to the point of our discussion today, we can't imagine how unbiblical this would have sounded to first century Jews whose entire Jewish scriptures were built on an ethic to the contrary of the new teaching Jesus gives. And many of you have read the Old Testament stories. And if you haven't, let me sum up uh, this topic of violence, retribution, and justice. Israel never turns the other cheek. I mean, think back to the heroes of Israel's past, right? Joshua? Joshua's a warrior who goes into the promised land and destroys other nations for the sake of God. He's no cheek turner. He's a warrior. Or look at King David. In whose line the Messiah was to come had He had so much blood on his hands, God says, you know what? I'm not going to let you construct the temple of the Lord. We'll leave that to your son, Solomon. Many in his audience that are hearing this passage or this sermon from Jesus wouldn't have hoped for this outcome because they wanted blood on their hands. They wanted Roman blood on their hands. So what is Jesus teaching? And is it in contradiction to the teaching of Deuteronomy? Well, in broad strokes, Jesus is outlining a a way that is rooted in forgiveness and enemy love. And it is in direct opposition to the way of violent retribution and and payback justice, characteristic of much of those first five books of the law. Jesus is presenting a way in which he is framing up a a direct opposite of the way an eye for an eye uh, lands. Now, let's think back to that Deuteronomy passage. There was a purpose for that teaching, for that law, an eye for an eye. What was its purpose? Well, eye for an eye was a way of curbing the escalation of violence that happens in so many ways in our world, right? Somebody does something and someone comes back and does worse, and the cycle just increases and increases. And and so the eye for an eye teaching was a way of curbing that kind of violent uh, growth. But Jesus takes that teaching and he takes it to the next level, saying we're not to retaliate at all, which is the superior way. It's a path that seeks to restore enemies rather than to destroy them. Now, the Pharisees heard this and believed Jesus was trying to abolish the law. So listen to the rest of what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17. Listen to this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is coming to fulfill the law? Well, the Greek term translated as fulfill is used by Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also used in the book of Luke in the Sermon on the Plain or earlier in Luke chapter 4 in the hometown synagogue sermon that Jesus preaches there. And in that passage, we come to see a little bit more of what it might mean. In both instances, the term means to bring to a designated end, to fulfill. Jesus did not come to abolish, as in destroy, the validity of or the undermine the credibility of the law. Jesus came to bring the law to his designated end. So if the law were a homework assignment, if I'm speaking on anyone's terms this morning, he was completing that assignment. If the law were a speech, he's concluding it. If the law were a plane, he's landing the plane. And these two examples clarify quite well what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law. In Matthew chapter 5, the teaching that Jesus gives there fulfills the law. It brings the command from the Hebrew scriptures to its fully intended conclusion or application. 
And I wish I had more time to speak on Luke 4. We'll come back to this in a series at the beginning of the year. But, but in Luke 4, Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue. And he preaches a sermon that gets him in a lot of trouble. And I want to look at why this may have gotten him in trouble. This, again, this is Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Luke 4, verse 18 through 21. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this scene, Jesus isn't just saying that his teaching fulfills the law. Do you listen closely to what it says? He's saying, I am the fulfillment of these scriptures. Now think for a moment, if you're in Nazareth and you grew up with Jesus in that hometown and you know his family, and this kid goes up to the pulpit, he opens up to the Old Testament, he quotes this passage and he says, hey, guess what, guys? Today, I'm in. I fulfill this book of the law and the prophets. What is the response? Well, we see what the response is. They're not happy about this at all. Again, these are the ones that have been there. They've taught him grammar and writing probably. They've been there and they bandaged his skin knees growing up. Now they're hearing this from, listen to the response in verse 28 through 30. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Isn't that an amazing response? First sermon, mine went better than that. I mean, my goodness. Hometown crowd wants to throw him off a cliff in the scene. They are infuriated. And why are they infuriated? They're infuriated that Jesus' claim about who he is is that he's the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Like we said a couple weeks ago, the point isn't the Bible. The Bible's point is Jesus. In his teaching in Matthew 5, Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He's fulfilling the law. He's, he's, he's taking it. But in, in fulfilling the law, he goes so far as to change the law. It's really bizarre, isn't it? But he's taking this start, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, And he's taking it to its intended conclusion. He's taking it to the superior way that Jesus comes to teach. Now, here's a rule I think is really important for us as we think about scriptures. We're paying attention to how Jesus reads the Bible. A Christian cannot cite Moses to silence Jesus. Uh, uh, Jesus is the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. So anywhere we look before that, if Jesus has a correction, we follow that correction. Now, personally, I have some rules that I try not to break. One of those life rules is never play chess against a Russian. The second, though, is this. If anyone can predict their resurrection and pull it off, I'll listen to anything they say and try to live my life by it. And that's why it matters how Jesus reads the Bible. I want to read the Bible like Jesus did, don't you? And that's what this sermon's about. How do we read closely to see how Jesus read this? To be a follower of Jesus is not only to read the Bible the way Jesus reads the Bible, but more importantly, to live out what we read in the Bible in a way that conforms to the will of God as revealed by Jesus. So let's finish what we started in Matthew uh, chapter 5. I want to read a little bit later on. Matthew 5, 18 through 20. 
Jesus says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now that last verse, I think, is a big part of what gets Jesus killed, right? Unless your righteousness surpasses that of these characters, the Pharisees, it ain't going to go well. By mentioning the Pharisees, what he's doing is he's putting them on notice that he's not a fan of their brand of righteousness, which flows out of their way of reading the law and living it out. He's offering the disciples a different kind of righteousness or a different way of being righteous than what is taught by the Pharisees because he reads the Bible differently than they do. And that's the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning. Is our reading of Scripture more like Jesus or more like a Pharisee? And confessionally, there have been moments in my life that it's looked more like Pharisees. It's looked more like perfect ritual following than it's been what Jesus emphasized, which I want to get to. One of those places we find what Jesus does to emphasize the scriptures and how to interpret them comes from Matthew chapter 22. This is a passage I come to often. It's a part of our, our vision as a church, actually. If you'll turn with me, turn with, with me to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. It's a key moment in the scriptures. It's one of those central bullseye moments that clarifies how to read the scriptures and what Jesus emphasized. Listen to how he reads the Bible. This is in Matthew 22, verses 34 and following. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is remarkable what Jesus does here. The question Jesus is asked is by an expert in the law who knows there's 613 laws to decide between. Which is the most important? I mean, how do you narrow them down to one? But Jesus doesn't have any problem narrowing them down to one or or two, I guess. And that's important because I was taught growing up with the scriptures, the scriptures are a flat text, right? And everything is just kind of equal with each other, all of these. And, and, And if you believe that Jesus' response is, Uh, And you hear this in light of that flat text idea that all of these laws are equally on on par with each other, then it can be pretty disorienting because Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, what do you mean most important law? All 613 are important. How could you possibly narrow it down? That's not his response. No, he says, well, all of the law and prophets, all of those blue books, the Hebrew scriptures, hang on two commandments. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know what's important to Jesus, this is one of the main places I would tell you to go. That's remarkable. Uh, what's remarkable here isn't that Jesus chooses these two commandments. There are other rabbis during that time who would have elevated these two places in the Old Testament and said that that's really what the center of the law is. What's stunning and revolutionary about what Jesus says is that he gives two commands when asked about which is the greatest commandment. As if to say, 
these two go together. You can't have one without the other. And this seems to be one of the major problems that Jesus has with the way the Pharisees read the Bible. Their priority was showing how much they love God by obsessing over every detail of the law and then judging and excluding anyone who didn't keep it as faithfully as they did, which meant that sometimes they tried to love God by keeping the law in a way that harmed their neighbors. And church, this isn't just an ancient problem, is it? It's quite modern. Has anyone in the room or someone that you love ever been harmed because people tried to show their love of God by judging and excluding others? Do you notice any Christian communities today who are trying to prove their love for God by excluding certain groups of people, trying to prove that they're faithful on their own right? You better believe that happens today, and some of us have the scars to prove it. So the priority of Jesus was not on defending a text. It was on defending a people who were created in the image of God. In particular, defending the victims of religious violence and abuse. Jesus did this even though it meant coming into direct conflict with some of the religious leaders of his day and with their interpretation of Scripture. Now, how do we see Jesus doing this? Well, it's all over the Gospels. Jesus often breaks the Sabbath, doesn't he? And he makes a decision for people in the midst of healing people on the Sabbath. And in the end, he says, look, Sabbath wasn't made for man. Or, uh, the Sabbath, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. That's what this intent is. And Jesus touches unclean people, risking becoming unclean himself. Why? Because he loved those people. Jesus practiced table fellowship with sinners. And the Pharisees call him out for it because the law wouldn't have it. Jesus protects a woman who's caught in adultery. The law said stoner, but out of love for her, he protected her rather than following the letter of the law. And because of Jesus' willingness to do all of these things, he's called all kinds of names and accused of all kinds of things he wasn't guilty of. Being a drunk, being a blasphemer, being a friend of sinners, and even in league with the devil. If you choose to love God and love people, you will be misunderstood. Other Christians will believe you don't stand for the truth. You'll be judged. You'll be excluded. You'll be labeled. But Jesus understands all that because that's the very treatment he received in trying to live out the law as he read it. Seeing people as more important than the letter of the law. Mercy over sacrifice. People over the Sabbath. And over and over again in the book of Matthew, Jesus told the Pharisees again and again, please go learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When it comes down to it, Jesus and the Pharisees saw Scripture in two very different ways. The Pharisees' understanding, as it is presented in the Gospels, is characterized by a rigid observance of laws and rituals. And Jesus, in contrast, had a way of interpreting the Bible that put a priority on people, even over the rules and the rituals. The way of the Pharisees was focused on fear, and thus insists on strict adherence to all the commands, even when these commands hurt and shut out people. And the way of Jesus, in contrast, is focused instead on what love requires, even when doing so means breaking some of the rules and commands. Another way to say it is this. The Pharisees are representative of the way of unquestioning obedience. And in the Hebrew scriptures, there's lots of examples of how that is what it means to be faithful to God. And Jesus seems to be more representative of the way of faithful questioning. 
And there's also that in our Hebrew scriptures if we pay attention. You see, Jesus was radical, but his reading of scripture had a long and storied heritage within Judaism, as well as throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And in the prophets, uh, these last books on the row there before the cross, they actually testify to this over and over again. Actually, we see both of these sides in scripture. Isaiah reminds us that God takes no pleasure and sacrifices. And the Old Testament kind of goes back and forth on these commitments, one to, to, to the way of unquestioning obedience and, and some to the way of faithful questioning. Think about stories that talk about unquestioning obedience and, and, and holding that up as a model to be followed. Abraham is commended for being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. That's an example of that faithfulness, of being obedient no matter what. King Saul ends up losing his entire kingdom because he hesitates to commit complete genocide as God has commanded in 1 Samuel 15. He loses the kingdom. But the Old Testament also has its share of stories that highlight faithful questioning. Abraham, for instance, pleads with God to change his mind about destroying Sodom in Genesis 18. He prays to God and God actually changes his mind. Yeah, if you can find enough, I'll save the city. Moses argues with God to change his mind and not uh, act in violence against Israel in Exodus 32 following that golden calf incident. You remember this? And God actually kind of seems to calm down in the scene because he calls him back to his faithfulness and to uh, the, the fame of his name. And the Psalms and the prophets are full of these examples, well acquainted with protests directed toward God about injustice that was not being dealt with. But if you read the Gospels closely, Jesus seems to plant himself squarely in that camp of faithful questioning. Jesus made a habit of questioning and rejecting how Scripture had been read and applied whenever he saw that it was hurting people. Jesus chose mercy over sacrifice. Jesus chose the law over love. Jesus chose people over the Sabbath. And ultimately, that's the choice that gets Jesus killed. The Pharisees' dedication to getting the law and the Bible right blinded them to the needs of their neighbors. And Jesus calls them out on it time and time again. Whereas Jesus teaches that if you focus on the needs of your neighbors, you can't help but get the law and the prophets right. That's actually the path to it best. This is what Jesus teaches near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, he clarifies this. And then I want to talk about in, in the New Testament how we see the writer after writer going back to this very way of reading Scripture it seems to be the way the early church dealt with these issues too. This is in Matthew 7, verse 12, nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to one of Jesus' final words about this law. Jesus says, so in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Again, he comes back to it and he says, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm trying to fulfill it. And he says, look, if, if you love you, this is the golden rule. If you can do to others what you would have them do to you, you're summing up all of those blue books. By focusing on the needs of our neighbors and putting ourselves in their shoes and then treating them well as we would want to be treated if we were in their situation, we somehow in that keep the law. And this is the teaching that Jesus uh, taught that had a massive impact on the way that the early church saw all of this. And so I'm going to grab a few books, just a moment. We're going to look at the New Testament and how it, it talks about this. Romans talks about this, Paul does. Paul also talks about it in, in Galatians. And then in the book of James, Jesus' brother talks about this. And then Jesus' beloved disciple, John, ends up picking up on the same theme. And so I want to read these quickly to you. Romans chapter 13 
talks about the same idea, almost Paul quoting verbatim Jesus' idea about how to read uh, the scriptures and how to live it out. Romans 13, verse 8 and following says there, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Doesn't that sound familiar? So the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, this is what Moses is teaching. The first commandment is, but no other gods before me, right? Follow God first and foremost. And when you do that, all the other commands you don't have to worry about. Because you have a character that's being formed by God. And, and so Paul picks up on that there. He also picks up on in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. Listen to what Paul writes there about the law. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the teaching of Jesus said well again by Paul. James. Again, James is the brother of Jesus. Imagine how annoying it would have been to grow up with a perfect brother, right? I mean, it would have been hard. To, to confess that he is the resurrected Lord, and yet that's what James claims, right? It's his own brother. This is what he has to say and teach about what his brother said, about how to read the Old Testament. James 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And then finally, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Verses 20 and 21. This is the beloved disciple of Jesus who spent all that time with him. This is what he has to say nearing the end of 1 John. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. You see how pervasive this command is over and over again, tied back to the law and the prophets. What it means to follow law and prophets is to love God with everything you have, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commands cannot be separated. They go together. And this is what it means to read the Bible through the lens of love. And I want to clarify something this morning. I mean, what Jesus has to say can sound real easy. Just love people. This is not an easy kind of love, right? The commands of Jesus in Matthew 5 are impossible to follow. It's not that Jesus is lowering the bar. When he talks about fidelity to marriage, he raises the bar. When he talks about enemy love, that's raising the bar above the Old Testament's teaching. Jesus' commands about how we follow God and how we live into the abundant life is not an easy path. But it's a call to genuinely love people in a way that prompts them to follow Jesus as well. And when we do that, when we love God and when we love our neighbor, it's amazing how we do the, the intent that the law was trying to point us to in the first place. Simple, love God and love your neighbor. And yet, is that the simple reputation that we've been given as the culture thinks about Christians? Is that the experience you've had in church? I'm sure many of us could say, yes, I've been loved from early on. People have, have been lifting me up and they've been teaching me all along to love God and love my neighbor. That's, those are the building blocks I've had all along. Jesus loves me? Yeah, that was the first song I learned. And I'm so grateful if that's been your experience is that love of God and love and neighbor, neighbor has been the core and you've experienced that personally. There certainly are experiences of that. But I think we all know that that's not all of our experience. Some of us walk in this morning with scars. Many of us who've left church over the last decade or several 
because of this, not the teachings of Jesus, not the commands of God that are given in Scripture. It's the treatment we experience from others that are so hard for us to get past. This ought to be the first impression that the culture has about us as followers of Jesus. Is this the reputation? Jesus' interpretation of the Bible could revolutionize the world if we trusted him. We would grow in no time as a church if we trusted and we shared this news. And yet there's this lingering sense within a good number of us in the room that this message is just too good to be true. Despite the litany of verses I've read today, many of us have been conditioned for so long to distrust a message like this as if the message of love is a false guest gospel that's peddled by preachers who just want to itch itching ears and what they want to hear. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus and the early church believed that if we love God and we love our neighbor, we fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus set aside laws to love people. Jesus ignored laws to protect women who were being used in their adultery. Jesus touched unclean people and disregarded scripture to do it. Jesus commended a Samaritan rather than a priest and a Levite who did their best not to become corrupted by a man who was lying on the side of the road. Jesus preferred the company of sinners rather than the self-righteous Pharisees who missed the entire point of the old law. And the early church got this message. And it's exactly why they were so attractive to those around them. It was the very thing that united them together. And it was the way of love that caused them to take babies out of trash dumps. It was so common in the Roman culture. You just set those aside, it's no problem. But it was the early Christians who stood up and said, no, we take in these children and we care for them. And then the plagues happened in the first few centuries. These massive plagues, the Romans just kind of disregard people, but it was the Christians who bound them up and showed the way of love that followed the example of the good Samaritan. You know what they were doing when they did that? They were summing up the law and the prophets. They were loving God and loving their neighbors better than any of their neighbors seemed to be able to do. So what about us? I'm asking myself all week this question. Do I read the Bible more like the Pharisees or more like Jesus? My guess is, if we're honest, we all want to be on Team Jesus with that, don't we? We all want to read the Bible as he did and put it into action, to be trained and corrected and rebuked, to be challenged, to live of that high expectation of the law that Jesus sets out in the Sermon on the Mount, but also a call to a high love of others in the midst of it. I hope that's our prayer. I hope that's our desire. I know it is. Let's pray as we close this morning. Father, I thank you for the way that Jesus came and and challenged the status quo so often, God. He challenged the the ways that we lost track of what was most important. He, He narrowed things down from this big, broad, flat text and helped us highlight those things that that were lived out so well by him and, and so well by the early church. They got that message. Paul taught it over and over again, and he's trying to work out conflicts with churches. And John uh, got the message clearly as well and said, we we can't love God without loving our neighbor as well. And and James, James also held up this law and said, this is what it means to read the scriptures well. God, I pray we in our day would grow in our reputation of this kind of thing. That we would grow to be known as a people who who love God with everything we have, and people know it beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the character and the model of our lives. God, help us not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in this way that Jesus teaches. I pray we'd also be known, God, 
as a people who never give up on those people around us. Who never believe that you cannot redeem every single sinner that lives on planet earth. Just as Jose prayed earlier, I pray our heart would be bent in that direction. That we would pray for our neighbors who need this good news. And that we might live it out in a way that would be attractive. A way that would prompt others to ask the question, why do you live the way you do? And our simple response is, well, it's pretty simple what we're called to do. Just to love God with everything we have and love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to trust this word, God. And to live it out faithfully this week in the midst of challenging circumstances where it's hard to love. God, pour love into us as you always do so that we can pour it into others. Help us to overflow this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.